0: Chapter Sixteen: The Final Chapter of Upper Canada Sketches by Thomas Conant. The Sliverbox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen. Great God, we thank Thee for this home, this bounteous earth land of the free, where wanderers from afar may come and breathe the air of liberty. In early days, the great majority of the men in Upper Canada partook more or less usually more, of ardent spirits or beer. Fifty years ago there were three distilleries in Oshawa, and they continued to do a flourishing and paying business, as most distilleries did in those days throughout the country generally. The operative who could extract the most alcohol from a given amount of grain was then the great man, one whose services were most sought in that business, and who likewise commanded the largest pay connected with or near to the distilleries in this part of ontario a custom milling was generally done sometimes the farmer brought his grain to the mill and sold it out there but this was not the usual course for ordinarily then the miller could not pay for much grain the usual course was for the farmer to bring his grain to the mill and get it ground or chopped in the tolling system after cleaning up a load of wheat there would ordinarily be a bag of tailings remaining. These tailings would consist mostly of small grain, which the farmer generally traded for whiskey, usually getting in exchange his ten-gallon can pretty nearly filled, whiskey then being considered a necessary of life as much as ordinary food was. To buy it for cash cost five pence per gallon, This style of doing things went on until the government began to put a tax on it. Then when the big distillery of Gooderham and Warts, Toronto, got better machinery, enabling them to extract more alcohol from the grain, the small distilleries could not compete, and one by one closed up, until now there are none about the country. Tuppence per glass was the price for whiskey at the hotel bars in those days, and one could fill the tumbler quite full, or take only a sip, at will, for this price. Treating in those days was far more common than now, and the man who would not treat was generally considered mean, as they expressed it then. So freely did the people at large at that time partake, that the individual who did not indulge was made the subject of curious comment." drinking bouts for the whole night were then very common usually a party of boon companions say eight or ten of them would assemble in the sitting-room of the hotel next the bar and someone would at once stand treat all round this having been partaken of one of the number would sing a song and then someone else would provide a drink all round probably a story would follow succeeded by another drink then another song and another treat, as a matter of course, and so the song, story, and glass passed around until every one had treated, and if, like Robert Burns, they were na foul, but just had plenty, they were by no means disposed to stop. Midnight has come, and though one or two of the weaker ones have already succumbed, and are lying prone upon the floor, still the song goes bravely on, and now is the landlord's time to make his money as a matter of business form or semblance change must be returned after every treat has been paid for and they are now all so foul that not one of them can count straight perhaps out of a one pound note four dollars given the landlord for a treat only three shillings or so are returned or out of three or four shillings handed him for the next treat only a few pence are returned for change and so the landlord dilutes his whisky and keeps the cash until daylight comes upon the bowders when they disperse with sore heads and stomachs while the landlord has the money this is a fair representation of an ordinary drinking bout of fifty years ago as told me by those who then participated in them and they were so common that one was usually going on at one of the hotels every night of the week, but, let us hope, excepting the Sabbath night. During the day these men were about their ordinary avocations, for even if they did drink, they worked. Were this fact not so, our country would not be what it is to-day, for downright hard work alone has made it. Those drinkers and midnight revelers were young, or not more than middle-aged men, and often lived fast lives. The consequence was that not one in a hundred of them lived to be sixty, and hardly one to any advanced age. It is usually supposed that delirium tremens can only be produced by long years of constant and excessive drinking, but authentic information comes to me of a widow-woman who, about the period of which I write, began keeping hotel near the village of and who had two or more sons, young men. These young men, strong and burly up to that time, now spent most of their time drinking. As soon as the effects of one glass of whiskey had in a measure passed off, they would ask their mother for more. "'Indeed, you shall have all you want to drink, for you are your mammy's own boys.' and this was said in the spirit of the greatest kindness so the boys drank and drank again keeping themselves stupid from day to day in six months those two boys who had never before drank to any excess had the delirium tremens and died all this in six months allow me here to describe one of my most vivid boyish impressions of thirty-five years or so ago At the rear of a hotel in Oshawa was a garden enclosed by a high, tight board fence in which black currant bushes mostly were planted. A young Englishman had been boarding about two months at the hotel, drinking constantly and spending money freely. It is only fair to add that this young man had been drinking just as heavily, apparently, before he came to this hotel and it is more than probable that a fond father and loving mother had sent him out from england in the vain hope of reforming him for from his dress and manner he had evidently belonged to a good family it was noticed that he had the blues slightly and got to spending considerable of his time in the stable from the stable he finally made his way into the garden enclosure and somehow possessed himself of a club it was summer-time and i remember most vividly as a little urchin looking through a knot-hole of the fence and seeing this poor fellow after remaining quiet for a moment with his eyes fixed make a sudden bound and strike with his club with all his might killing imaginary snakes among the currant bushes a period of rest would follow when he would sit or stand in a contemplative mood for a few minutes and as suddenly almost as gunpowder explodes, strike behind him with his club at some snake which would persist in stealthily approaching him from the rear. Perhaps it is superfluous to add that all this was fun for us boys, with the stout board fence between us and the man with the club. It was known in the hotel what the trouble was with him, and it was also generally recognized that nothing could be done for him for four days he ran his course killing snakes demons and hobgoblins in that garden and finally died literally while engaged in the imaginary battle with the enemy out in the garden Today he fills a nameless grave indeed so common were cases of delirium tremens in those days that i might go on and multiply instances tell indeed of a man climbing up into a hayloft in the dark Catching the teamster who came for hay, frightening him into a fit of sickness, and dying there before morning, curled up on the hay like a dog. Again, I might instance the case of another unfortunate, who started and ran from the corners, then constituting Oshawa, directly in the course of the mill ponds, with the whole village chasing him, making past the ponds and into the woods a mile and a half away before being caught like a man running amuck, But perhaps I have said enough on so unpleasant a feature of early life in Ontario. The 1001 Society of those days was an organization formed among those who habitually drank and spent nights at bouts, and was a recognized order among them. Probably there never was any written constitution or by-laws to govern them." Still, the rules of the society were as well known and as fully recognized as if there were such. The fundamental rule which they were to observe in their drinking was that no one must drink more than two gallons at one sitting without rising and reporting the matter to the recognized chiefs of the order. We must in all charity believe that the liquid in this case would be beer. In any case, it could hardly be spirits." still i am led to believe in many instances before the great goal of the two gallons was reached the beer would be frequently mixed with spirits the landlord in these bouts of the thousand and one society never forgot to make his quota not only in the matter of change as before enlarged upon but some of them used to boast that a landlord ought to be worth five dollars per day to his own house by his own drinking that is to say, he would take all the treats the company would offer him, and thus imbibe his own liquor, and keep the pay therefore at tuppence per glass to the amount of five dollars per day. Those were the days of pugilistic Ontario. Let there be a ploughing match, for instance, a fight was sure to take place at it. Indeed, a raising, or a bee of any kind, was never complete without a fight. It would appear that persons would take that plan of settling old feuds or grudges, and whiskey fights were considered as much a matter of course as it was for men to assemble. Annually during one day in June, all the able-bodied men of military age had to assemble for drill in Toronto, and I have it from some old men, who used to go from these parts, that at every such training there were fights in the morning before they commenced, and likewise in the evening when they were dismissed from drill they tell of a big bully at one training in toronto who boldly dared any one to fight and who finally succeeding in arousing a small but plucky man to stand before him a ring was formed and the bully punished his small opponent shamefully there was a man from this locality who had his feelings irritated by the unequal and harrowing spectacle he happened to remark, I wish he'd serve me so, and the bully took him up. It is needless to add that they had all been drinking more or less. Our man quickly pulled off his coat and stepped before his big antagonist. This time the bully had aroused the wrong man, for our hero possessed the strongest arm and hand any one was known to have in the locality, and in a few blows he thrashed the bully clean and fair felling him to the ground and giving the prostrate man a vigorous kick as a parting salute but this was a fair fight whereas generally in those days they did not scruple to strike below the belt while gouging biting and kicking were common accompaniments but the picture is not a pleasant one and i shall not further dwell upon it surely we should be thankful that our province has improved in its ideas of temperance and conduct As the world at large has in the great march of reform ideas. In this fast nineteenth century, in these days of divorces and of free love, it is really a pleasing spectacle to be able to point to one of our elderly Canadian couples who had been companions, one and inseparable, for sixty years. They were married at twenty two and at once began clearing a Canadian forest farm during the previous fall the expectant bridegroom alone had chopped and cleared some five or six acres out of the dense forest and erected a log-house in the clearing in due time he brings his bride to his home a home as yet in embryo but there are four willing hands to work together hard but contentedly to make it a home in reality the wife has got as her portion the usual canadian portion of that day and for that matter very much of this day as well a feather bed some chairs a table some bedding and a cow made her simple dowry alone and almost unaided they work honestly and faithfully day after day subduing the forest primeval crops are gathered annually and they are on the high road to prosperity children have come to grace the household and the loneliness is broken as the roads become improved around the settlement sunday morning finds them both arrayed in their best and with their span of horses hitched to the wagon on their way to the nearest church with all their eagerness to get on they do not at any time forget to worship god and their place at the little church is seldom vacant unless it be exceptionally stormy or the roads exceedingly bad, as is frequently the case in the spring and fall. The farm is cleared and a new house built, and he is now among the well-to-do of the locality. Another farm has been added to the homestead, but the good pair never so much as think casually that they might cease their arduous labors. No family jars occur to disturb their serenity, but day succeeds day in right good fellowship and each performs his or her individual part faithfully and earnestly divorce forsooth the thought of such has never entered their minds in the most remote degree time steals imperceptibly but surely along and the eldest girl has arrived at marriageable age neighbors sons call in occasionally and it takes many such calls before the good parents really get it into their heads that the daughter has suitors a few months roll around and there is a rural wedding the minister from the near village has called in he comes before dinner and after partaking of it chats gaily with the neighbors who begin to assemble four o'clock has arrived and it is time for the ceremony to proceed the young couple join hands a few words are spoken the assent is given and they are man and wife as the mother got her dowry so she the daughter gets hers and the household goes on again in the ordinary way only one member less sits around the family board and assists at the daily tasks the eldest son has taken a fashion of being out at nights a good deal of late not content with this he must have a smart buggy and his horse must be well groomed as he goes away with his rig solitary and alone but if he goes away solitary and alone his lonesomeness is soon broken and dispelled by the presence of a neighbor's daughter for a few months this process goes on when the youth announces to father and mother that he is about to marry the good couple can scarcely realize that they have a son old enough to wed Their lives are spent in downright usefulness and whole-souled earnestness. Time has literally stolen a march upon them, and it almost dazes them to think that their son is to marry and leave them. This time something more than ordinary is expected and given. An outlying farm must be given to the son, and horses to work it with, as well as stock and some seed grain." thereupon the son and his young bride begin their life's journey in rural canada but whether they will accomplish as much as the father and mother or whether they will imbibe the roving notions of many of our younger people is a question that remains to be solved at last and not until now the old couple who have never yet had a thought separate and apart from the other realize they are growing old and must soon cease from hard work. To their honor, and to the credit of our country, be it said, in order that their other children may contract good marriage alliances, the family gathering is still kept up, the family board is ever open, and a place always is ready for the worthy neighbors. To the utmost of their physical abilities they perform all the manual labor they can about the farm and homestead. The dollars have accumulated, and there are sundry loans here and there in the neighborhood, both on mortgage security and notes of hand as well. Their money-making has been by no speculative risk in any sense, but, like the even tenor of their united lives, has simply flowed along, gradually accumulating, and not being made by any lucky stroke. A few years more and the scene shifts shifts materially for the family are all married and gone and once more the old couple are where they commenced years and years ago in the first days of their young manhood and womanhood alone again in the world but still faithful to each other and still doing their duties daily and faithfully but the old farm is yet on their hands while their strength is not equal to the task of attending to it Reluctantly they consider it best to rent the home farm and purchase a neat and commodious cottage in the adjacent town. It was a corner's not many years since. Some time later it became a village, and some four or five years ago it grew ambitious and took upon itself the name of a town. Here they purchase a little home in which they quietly spend the last years of their lives. They are free from worry— free from anxiety and as during the years long past they have no thought that is not shared in common old neighbours as they come to town call upon them and their lives are diversified and enlivened two or three times a week by such visits their children most of them reside within driving distance of their parents drop in upon them at any time and thus in perfect happiness and serenity they pass down the sunset slope of life their lives and individual characters are towers of strength in the neighborhood for rectitude and uprightness and the community without a descent recognizes their true worth one is almost tempted to wish that their already long lives might be yet prolonged for many years that they may continue to be as bright and shining lights in the community but the dreaded day comes at last the good wife and mother has fallen ill daily the town doctor visits her and does all that medical skill can do in such a case but no resource of science is able to renovate the worn-out human body perhaps the most affecting sight one could view in these days would be to see the old husband and partner of sixty long years sit hourly and daily by the bedside disconsolate and lost as he sadly views the daily emaciating face of her whom he had chosen in the bloom of youth the inevitable comes at last and the spirit forsakes its worn house of clay at the funeral gather the whole countryside about the former home the carriages fill the road and the yard and the cottage is packed to the doors from the town church the minister has come he stands in the hall reads from sacred writ admonishes gives a few words of solemn warning the procession moves on and in a few minutes all is over back to the cottage home comes the aged man alone in this world literally alone for no one but persons of such advanced age can so keenly feel the absolute loneliness Forty years ago he might have thrown off his grief and faced the world again, but for him now the day is gone beyond recovery. His eyes have suddenly dimmed, his one-time firm lower jaw relaxes, his step grows feeble. Evidently his days are numbered, and the reader must allow me to kindly draw the veil over him and leave him as we see him. Tottering down to join his companion of the past sixty years, who has preceded him but a few months. But is there in our country any more pleasing example of success than this old couple present? Successful they have been in a most eminent degree. They may not have accumulated any great store of wealth, but they have raised to Canada a family of sons and daughters who are a credit to our beloved country. Sons and daughters, whose families are working their farms and fields and helping to make our province what it is today. Before closing these somewhat random sketches of life in the early settlements and country districts of Upper Canada, I would wish to thank my readers for the courtesy of perusing these pages. May I also indulge the hope that they have given them some pleasure and profit in the reading. And add that it is my most earnest desire, may it also be yours, that our country, which we all love, may be guarded and led by the great Omniscient in the future as it has been in the past. End of chapter 16. End of Upper Canada Sketches by Thomas Conant. Read for LibriVox.org by Tricia G. Thanks for listening.